Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 222, recorded November 14th, 2015. So for the third time since we've been doing Star Trek Comic Book Review, we're going back to the Tokyo Pop Manga series. Yes, the, the unique art style, the traditional art style, and seeing our characters doing wacky emotional things with their eyes bulging out of their head right. and their mouths open. Such almost speed racer-esque emotion happening at times in these comics. It's amazing. Right. So I knew that it had been a while since we did Tokyo uh, Pop stuff, but right. I did not realize it had been so long. So the the first time we did it, we did it back in uh, episode 10. Hmm. You can remember back that far. 10? Was it that yeah. long ago? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was when we first did it. That was when we were kind of doing a little sampling from all the publishers. Right. And then the last time we did it, uh, it was episode 49. We had a special guest host, Jamie, and we did the... Uh, we did three of the stories then. Right. And we're doing 222 today, so a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, and I enjoyed that uh, Will Wheaton story that was done. And the Art of War one, I think it was? I think you're right. Yeah. Um, And I like most of these. I mean, and the thing, it isn't necessarily the artwork that I'm, I'm totally stoked about. Right. But some of the stories are quite good. Two of these I would agree with. One yeah, of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, they're not. All three are not fantastic, but I'm surprised how good the writing is on two of them. Right. Yeah. Very sophisticated story too. I mean, yeah. with with real consequences if you if you really stop and think about it. Right. That uh, you know, fates of whole worlds are kind of being decided. Right. And then even little things like um, like Spock. And what it is to be human, and oh yeah, absolutely. So no, I agree. There's some good stuff I, here. I really enjoy these stories, even though the artwork is a little more cartoony than I usually like. But it did not detract from the story at all for me. Right. Cool. I, I was invested wholeheartedly. Yes. <laughs> and that changeling one even had its um, it had some charms to it. Right. So we haven't actually said which stories we're doing. So um, way back when we did the first two stories in the um, the graphic novel called Uchu. So we're doing the last two stories of that one, which is entitled The Humanitarian and Inalienable Rights. And then we're doing the first story of the Next Generation manga, and it is entitled The Changeling. Hmm. So in oh. case you're reading along, you know which ones to... You know, go read real quick. Come back. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, shall we start them? Yeah, let's go ahead. Excellent. So I'm doing the first one, which is story number three out of uh, Manga Uchu, and it's titled The Humanitarian. Published date is July 2008. The writer, Luis A. Reyes, 
artist Nate Watson, tones by Chow Hun Lam, lettering and layout by Michael Paoli and Lucas Riviera, cover art by Felipe Smith, cover design by Tina Corrales, associate editor Tim Beadle, and uh, also doing editor duties, uh, Luis Reyes, the writer and editor. Hey, just so that I know, where are you getting all that? Because that wasn't in the book. I had to look it up on the web. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I looked up uh, Uchu, and then I got all that from there. Well, not all of it, but some of it. Right. Okay. Yeah, because very light on the uh, on the credits. The cover for the Uchu book presents a close-up of Kirk in his gold Taz uniform, aiming his phaser at the reader. It's a really good drawing of Kirk, and the close-up of the Type Two Taz phaser is really cool. I like that cover. With Kirk off the ship for some well-earned R and R at Starbase Forty-Seven, Spock is at the con, considering their current mission of peace. They will arrive soon at Rudiman, where their mission will be to help the troubled planet to complete their emergence from a long history of civil war and unrest. Seventy years ago, that the people of Rudiman were on a path for Federation membership, but plunged into the bloodiest of conflicts that resulted in them cutting off all contact with the rest of the Quadrant for seventy years. Now they are asking for the Federation's aid in helping their fragile peace efforts take root. Spock is fascinated at the opportunity to help Rudiman rebuild infrastructure and to some degree the fabric of their society after decades of war and neglect. Later, on Rudiman, Spock and McCoy complete meeting with Governor Lao Tzu, who is spearheading the Federation's involvement in the peace movement. Most of the planet's other governors support Lasu's efforts, but not all. The governor and his assistants, Kailat, thank Spock and McCoy for their efforts and part company. McCoy and Spock walk to the location where Scotty and many other members of the Enterprise crew are located, evaluating the planet's fledgling warp drive prototypes, educational system, medical system, security system, power grid, and other pieces of infrastructure. Their initial reports point out the poor condition of most of them and proposals of how the application of Federation technology and best practices can result in improvements across the board. There is a lot of work ahead for the Rudiman people and the Federation personnel that will stay on to help implement these new programs. A Lieutenant Teak reporting on security to Spock also tells him how his father left Rudiman shortly after first contact. His father made a home and a family in the Federation because he believed his planet was doomed to the constant state of war and violence. He hoped to return one day, but died before Rudiman initiated contact. A huge explosion takes place that takes out many buildings. In some of them, the Enterprise crew was concentrated. The lieutenant, Spock, McCoy, and some others were far enough away that they remained unharmed, but most of the others were were in the blast radius. Spock hails the Enterprise, and in a calm, unemotional Vulcan voice, describes the carnage and calls for medical teams to beam down immediately. Spock estimates a crew casualty count of 70. Spock out. 
Later, Spock enters the sick bay, where McCoy and Nurse Chapel are treating far more people than the ship's medical facilities were specced for. Spock also takes Scotty's report. It was an old nuclear engine. Its casing cracked and went up in a huge explosive force. How it got under the main building where they were doing their work, Scotty does not know. Spock asks if it was intentional. Scotty says it could have been, but given the condition of the casing, it could have just been an accident. Spock gets the security report from the lieutenant. A fourth of the Enterprise crew are dead or severely injured, which is overwhelming McCoy's facilities. Spock knows enough about the situation and makes a decision to to evacuate all remaining crewmen from the surface of Rudamon. Within the hour, they will break orbit and set course for a nearby starbase, where the crew will get additional treatment. On the bridge, Spock shows signs of stress, but continues to direct the remaining crew to make preparations to leave. Spock returns to his quarters to to meditate. McCoy joins him with a bottle of saurian brandy. McCoy generously pours into two glasses. Spock says he will not partake. McCoy says they're not for him. McCoy tries to get Spock to open up. He can see the stress is affecting the normally cool and collected Vulcan. Spock states he has no emotions to be concerned over. Eventually, the overworked doctor almost falls asleep. Spock asks McCoy to contact Starbase 47 and apprise them of the casualties they will be delivering to them. Spock leaves McCoy in his quarters. While walking in the hallway, he receives word that Governor Lau's body was found. He was killed in the blast. Spock acknowledges the horrible news unemotionally. So much for the architect of a fragile peace. Spock takes a moment to collect himself. Spock beams down to the surface and pays his respects to the dead governor. Lasau's assistant, Miss Kailat, overhears Spock giving the order to beam up the last of the crew and begs with Spock to stay and finish the peace mission. Spock explains the casualties they have suffered, the specialists they have lost, makes continuation of the mission impossible at this time. Spock assures her the Federation will return. Spock and Lieutenant Teak turn with six others to prepare to beam up. Before it takes place, before transport takes place, a sniper's bullet cuts through the solemn air and cuts clean through Teak's chest. He falls into a pool of his own making as Spock calls for the immediate beam out and rushes to the young lieutenant's aid. They dematerialize with Teak's limp body in Spock's arms. Transport complete, Spock says Teak is down. Later, at Starbase 47, the wounded are transferred to the station's medical facilities. Kirk returns to the Enterprise. Crew replacements begin to arrive on the ship. Spock welcomes the captain aboard, and they discuss the mission. The experienced captain knows how this catastrophic loss of crew must be affecting his first officer and friend. Spock does not admit to feeling anything, and Kirk knows his friend too well to push the matter. Kirk says he noticed Spock did not make any log entries after the explosion and holds up a data pad. Spock apologizes and says he will take care of it immediately. 
Kirk says he will be taking some time to ease back into things and ask Spock to stay on duty for now. Kirk will take the con back in the morning. Spock agrees and heads back to the bridge. Seated at the con, a yeoman hands Spock a data pad. Spock's eyes open wide as he sees the names of the dead listed. The list goes on and on. His crew. Spock puts the pad on his lap and contemplates the loss. Though surrounded by bridge personnel, he does so totally alone. The end. So today is November 14th, 2015. So yesterday, yes. there was a horrible attack on Paris. Yeah. And this story, at the time, when I was hearing the news yesterday, I did not think of this story. But you given the synopsis, it's almost, ex- you know, it's so close to what's really happening there in Paris, you know, right le- yesterday and today. Yep. It's, uh, it's really, really sad. Yeah. The report I heard last night was estimated 100 people, uh, who by now the numbers are probably different, but. Yeah, this morning I, I saw 153. 153. Right. Okay. But, well. but also, you know, they were explosions and shootings and things like that you know very similar to what's going on in this story so it's one thing to read a story and think okay this is another planet this is a fictional universe but then something like that happens and you're like oh this this stuff really can happen and does happen yeah yeah (sighs) it's tough for no good reason right okay so uh spock is the humanitarian referred to in the title i'm gonna guess Unless they're no, I think they're talking about Spock here. Although really, sure. the entire crew, the entire Federation is is on a humanitarian mission. But I really think it's focusing on Spock. So no, I agree. So a great lesson in the burden of command. Uh, I really like the story. No, I like the story a lot. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know he is unemotional, but you can tell that maybe he's not as unemotional as he wants people to think. Sure, and definitely as. The character grew through movies and TV shows, um, and that the end, or later in his uh, is in his incarnation, he had mellowed quite a bit and was not above admitting that he does have emotions. He just isn't uh, like many Vulcans; they're not on, they're not in the business of displaying it. So, at least I, I thought that when I first saw Spock admit that he has emotions. He just doesn't wear them on his sleeve. Um, that was like a, uh-huh. Because traditionally it was, the, the story was he didn't have emotions. Well, not but, only did he not have emotions, but he would die if he ever let them come out. Right? I mean, isn't die. there an episode where they're making him laugh or something? And, oh, yeah. And, Spock, and McCoy's like, oh, he'll die. You oh, know, or something like that's that. That's BS. I, <laughs> No, well, but I, at the time, I, I in know, the 60s, I know, that I know. was that was canon. That was the only exposure we had to it. Exactly. So I, I like the revelations. I mean, I'm not crazy about that, but I am crazy about, crazy about the revelations later that said, "Yeah, I got emotions. I'm just not gonna gonna display it." And in the early days, he would never admit that. Right. So uh, his own personal journey, where he would get to the point where he would admit such a thing, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, very good. Now, he's half human and that kind of thing, but 
uh, I mean, normal Vulcans feel emotion, but it may be even more suppressed than, than in Spock's case. So, interesting. Interesting. I mean, right? I mean, yeah, I assume uh, that... Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I always read that it was kind of... Um, they spun the whole emotion thing in that uh, Nimoy wanted to have have emotions, or he wanted to broaden the character for the movies. Mm-hmm. And then especially when it came back to life, he wanted to bring more of the more more emotion into the character than than what he was able to do before. Now I don't know how true that is. That's just something I read. Right. Well, but it makes sense because that's about when it starts changing. And then you know, retcon wise, they all Vulcans now have that where maybe at first it was only supposed to be Spock because he came back from the dead, or because he was half human. You know. Yeah, and he. And he was able to get over his own insecurities enough to understand he didn't need to keep that point so buried. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things I really liked about the 2009 movie was that, you know, they when they were showing Spock as a youngster and wailing on that one kid. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, I like that, that it, it's, it acknowledges that maybe Spock's not the only one that has emotions, you know, but... Uh, he is the one that, that gave in to him. He did. <laughs> oh, he did. Yeah, and then the fact that uh, he got so angry. I think the fact that in the 2009 movie that they put him in one of the most horrible emotion-generating situation in the world and just, let's watch what Spock does now. He lost his mother. He lost his father. He, or He lost his mother. He lost his planet. Um. I mean, how horrible. Right. I mean, to see your mother die right in front of you. So, let's see what Spock does with this. Um, I thought that was a great... Uh, I think that was really good writing. Yeah, no, it was good. Right. Yeah, the one thing I was wondering is, where, where was Cybok during all that? <laughs> Cybok. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to see Cybok? That's, that's an interesting question. Yeah, was he on... Was he on Vulcan when it was blown up? I'm I'm gonna guess he was off on his voyage of discovery, but yeah, I don't know. Finding God. Finding God in the center of the galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a great that was a great movie, wasn't it? Wow. All right, we're in the weeds. Let's talk we are. about this comic. Okay, so I think they did a really good job of tackling a very meaty subject and putting Spock. Um, I thought I, it was cool how they put Spock through it rather than Kirk. Right. Yeah, and I also liked how, you know, even though he's making all the logical choices, you know, even if you are doing the logical thing, doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the right thing and that you're going to be able to prevent casualties any more than you would if you were, uh, you know, doing the emotional thing like, like Kirk would, would right. maybe give different answers um, here, but they both equally likely to, you know, have more casualties. Uh, just when you're dealing with a situation like this. Exactly. Which I thought was good. I mean, you, you're reading it, you're like, oh man, that's a cold answer. But, you know, he's doing it for the right reason, and then... Right. And then, you know, people still die, and even though he made technically the right the right choice. Exactly. Just drives home that uh, stuff's going to hit the fan no matter what you do. Exactly. Kobayashi Maru time. So you got to right. make the best decisions you can in a bad situation. Right. 
So what do you think of the artwork? It's not the traditional like uh, speed no. racer manga style. It's it was more subdued and aside from being in black and white, uh, not a lot of difference from what we would get in uh, any Western comic. Yeah, um, except for the fact that I wasn't, I, I didn't find the art style particularly uh, pleasant. I mean, I think the opening drawings of Spock at the con. Um, were kind of, I don't know, um, kind of hard, kind of, um, well, kind of unattractive. So, I mean, Spock looks fine. He looks stern. He looks almost like he's pouting or something. Uh, and he's thinking about this mission, which he, he is saying himself, if he was emotional, he would be excited. Uh, for the po- for the possibility of of doing this mission and helping these people, but the look on his face, <laughs> he looks pretty uh, pretty dour. Anyway, uh, it, it, I, I'm not a huge fan of the art, but yeah, it is not. This is this is definitely not the manga stuff that we get in the other issues. Right. No, I liked it. I thought it was a interesting yeah. take on these characters. Right. And they all look close enough to the actors that I never wondered who who somebody was where some of these other well, ones that we're going to read a lot of times i had to go back and really pay attention as to who was scotty and who was mccoy yeah things like that well i i don't think they did a particularly good job on scotty um here I, in this in this book yeah uh because i don't think he looks looks that much i mean he looks close enough to scotty oh yeah you can figure it out but uh spock okay that's definitely spock mccoy looks pretty good um, the one panel where you see Christine Chapel looks pretty good. Um, I think there were just some panels with Scotty that they didn't do a good job with. Mm. I'd have to go back and reread it, but from what I remember seeing, I thought it looked like Scotty. Yeah, I I have a different opinion, but well, that's that's why we all have opinions. Exactly, exactly. So um, yeah, it's good, but I mean, I think the artwork was good in this one. Um, just not my favorite. Right. And when that one crew member gets shot, I mean, that's a pretty graphic shot. It's very graphic. It's a very, I think it's a really good job. No, that's good. Yeah, I mean, they, they show that bullet going right through him. Right. So is it a bullet or is it some sort of phase weapon? Because uh, we're not used it, to seeing projectiles. I, it looks like a projectile weapon. It does. Yeah. But without the color, we don't know if it has, like, a stream of blue coming <laughs> off of it or something. Yeah. I think it's a – yeah. I think it it's definitely went through him. So. Oh, yeah. And you you see his shirt uh, and maybe other things coming out his back along with the right. bullet. Yeah. It's pretty so, graphic. So, uh, yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, I, I have nothing else to say about this one. Um, I think I covered all mine as well. Cool. All right, so you want to move on to four? Let's do it. All right, so the fourth and last comic that was in uh, the manga Uchu, entitled Inalienable Rights. All right, story by Nathaniel Bowden, pencils and inks by Heidi Arnhold, tones by Dominic Peristra. All right, so uh covers the same as the last uh, story that Ken just read. 
So the story starts with the Enterprise arriving at a new system investigating a reading of a recent warp drive flight. Scans show that the inhabitants of the planet are not spacefaring people yet, but they have just achieved a jump at warp 1.2. Kirk starts to make preparations for a first contact mission. Kirk takes McCoy and Scotty down to the planet via shuttlecraft. They land near the hangar where the warp ship is being stored. Much to a young woman named Jenna's dismay, she is not allowed to tell Kirk that she is the one who created the engine when he asks who designed the ship. Instead, the leader of the planet takes the claim. Scotty is excited to talk about the specifics of the ship, but the leaders just look at him dumbly. Eventually, Kirk is invited to a meal being held at that exact time. During dinner, the leader also seems to not understand the concept of doctor, just as he did not understand Scotty's request to speak to the engineer behind the ship's designs. Eventually, dinner winds down, and Kirk tells the leader that he's going to meet with the other settlement of people on the planet called the Moles. To this, he gets very upset, stating that they are the ones that achieved warp drive, not the moles. Elsewhere, Jenna is in her cell where all the scientists are being kept. She is excited about the few things she overheard Kirk saying, where he addressed them all as equal and not a secondary class as the custom is here. She is able to drug her captor and escape from her cell. Dinner completed. Kirk leaves the Capitol building, but not before the alien leader makes a threat that he better not go visit the moles. Once out of earshot, Jenna surprises them and asks Kirk about the life away from the planet. Kirk sees a young woman in that special Kirk way and sends McCoy and Scotty back to the ship via the shuttlecraft. Kirk notices a huge gash on her head from when she tried to escape her cell and the guard whacked her on the head with the butt of his gun before she was able to sedate him. Kirk thinks that she needs medical attention and requests two for beam up. As they vanish, an onlooker sees this and is astonished. Back on the ship, Jenna is patched up and spends some time with Scotty. He is very happy to pick her brain about the decisions she made while designing her ship. She points out that he has this huge ship which is so much better technologically than her own. But he tells her that he did not design warp drive from scratch, which makes her someone to admire. Back on the planet, the president is notified of the beaming away of Jenna. He knows Kirk will eventually return, and when he does, they will be ready. Back on the ship, Jenna is getting the full tour by Kirk himself. Kirk ends the tour with a visit to the captain's quarters. In Kirk's defense, it was Jenna's suggestion. The next morning, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Jenna all beam back down to the planet. Once there, the president greets the group and unveils his surprise. He has four of the science class people on their knees with rifles jammed into the back of their heads. The president claims that Kirk is planning to kidnap all of his thinkers, and he would rather see them killed. Kirk tells him that that is not the plan, but Kirk refuses to drop his own phaser. A short scuffle happens, but is cut short when the president starts to give the order to kill the, sciences, the scientists. 
Kirk stops, and when he does, Jenna takes his phaser and holds it up to Kirk's head. She tries to use Kirk as a hostage so that the Enterprise will beam up all of the science class slaves and whisk them away. Before Kirk can refuse, Spock neck pinches her and she falls to the ground. Kirk tells the leader that they are perhaps not ready to join the interstellar galaxy just yet, and they leave. Once gone, all of the aliens look up to the sky and wonder what opportunities they might have just lost. The end. What a bunch of boneheads. Jeez. I mean, both sides. I mean... Uh, Kirk's side, too? No, no. No, you... Don't you do that. The, uh... The scientists, the, are they are they the moles? No, they, I don't think so. It, okay, so they never really said that. So the moles are just some other group of people on the right. planet that they don't I'm, like and probably war with. They uh, say they're on another continent. Okay. And then the these people, they're treating their scientists like third or fourth class citizens, like slaves. I mean, they, they were being kept in some kind of a jail cell under guard, right? Under guard, right. Yeah, they were, they were, they were slaves and they're in jail cells, yeah. So I think all the doctors and all the scientists are in these prisons. Amazing. Just amazing. Right. So I, I – I, you know, the whole time you're reading it, you're thinking, man, these, this, this president and the whole ruling class are so horrible people. And these scientists, they're just, you know, just normal people trying to do their job. But then she turns out to – you know, she's willing to kill Kirk. Yeah. To uh, get her po- way. She's a poop head, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it was, like I said, it was her idea to, you know, have a little romantic action with Kirk. Uh, so. Yeah, but was that manipulation? Exactly. That's what, yeah. You know, at the time, you're not thinking that. But then when she does that at the end, you're like, oh, my goodness, was she trying to manipulate him the whole time, too? I think so. I think, uh,. I think we didn't see the good people in this this uh, this the world's population. Mostly the poopy people. Yeah. Right. And maybe the moles are even worse. Yeah. That's why they hate them so much. Yeah. Well. Anyway. So, okay. So this had some really interesting stuff going on, too, story-wise. So I like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was nearly the story or had the emotion of the uh, first one. Uh, and I also think that the artwork was laughable. Well, it's a different art style. It's definitely more of the cartoony style. It is, but it's not as cartoony as the third book we'll read. But the third book is supposed to be a little bit more lighthearted uh, a story. Right. So we don't have any ridiculous looking, surprising, where the characters are surprised and they their, their total faces change. We have, <laughs> we, we have... Like, everybody's consistently drawn fine, but they're just not drawn like the actors very much. No. I mean, they didn't even try to make Kirk look like Kirk. It's like, what What the heck? Kirk doesn't have that big a nose. It's like, uh, and McCoy is blonde. It's is like, McCoy the blonde one or Scotty? I kept, I kept switching them. Well, he might be too, but I definitely know McCoy uh, is, is, is blonde. Now, again, this is black and white and stuff, everybody. Right. But, if you don't have them. But, you can tell the difference between blonde and brown hair. And McCoy definitely has blonde hair in many, but not all, of the panels that he appears in. 
Yep, you're right. Okay, yeah. Even when I was going back and redoing it, uh, yeah. I still was flipping it on, thinking that Scotty was the blonde one and McCoy was the dark-haired one. But no, you're right. And, and maybe Scotty's blonde in some, some too. I, I don't remember that. but I, nah, He probably isn't. I, I think, yeah. But yeah, and they uh, don't look anything like the actors. And no. like I said, the, the whole time I'm reading this, I had to keep going back to try to figure out who was who and what was what. Right. Yeah, Kirk looks bad. Spock looks worse. Oh my God, Scott's face, uh, Spock's face, uh, and the faces. The basically, I think the the biggest problem is the faces are drawn out of proportion. It's like people's noses are bigger than they should be. I mean, uh, I don't know. Anyway, it, it's not great. Um, I do like the bl- a blonde McCoy's chicken joke, though. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and, and repeat it so that because uh, I didn't put it in the synopsis. Oh. In his own sarcastic way, at least you completely, at least I know why I'm sure you did the same thing. I immediately put McCoy's sarcastic spin on what I was hearing in my mind, where he says, uh, come halfway across the galaxy and the the food still tastes like chicken or something like that. Right, exactly. So, and and they were eating some pretty nasty looking uh, critters. Lizards and stuff. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. So... I, I did like that. that was I, good. It was I good also too. liked how the uh, so the warp, although it was kind of odd. So the warp ship that that they took up and got Kirk and Company's attention in the first place, they do show it on the ground, and it kind of looks like a cross between an old P fifty one Mustang World War two vintage plane and like an awkward burned bird with bony legs. I mean, you remember you remember the. Uh, that panel, right? Yeah, no, I'm looking at it right so now. So it's kind of it's kind of swoopy, the, the more swoopy than than the P51, but um, it, it kind of reminded me of of that plane. But you will agree that it looks cooler than the Phoenix, right? <laughs> it looks cooler than the Phoenix and is a lot more unlikely than the Phoenix. Aw, well, come on, look at that. I mean, at least. The, Okay, so the Phoenix kind of makes sense, even though it's also a little bit ridiculous. They just stuck on two nacelles on the side of a, you know, uh, a, a missile, right? In gener- in, basically, um, but this this uh, warp ship, it doesn't look like a spaceship. It, it looks a lot more like a plane. So that an alien plane. Can. Uh, sure, it's an alien plane. There's no two ways about that. It, its shape is very swoopy and stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I, I like the. I mean, it, whether it looks practical or not, I, I didn't really give much uh, thought on that one. But I just thought I like the way it kind of had the uh, you know the texture to it. Mm-hmm. it. Had those little. I don't know if they're vents or what, but everything kind of has this. You know, these little grids on it every so right. often. Right. Just gave it that alien look. I thought I thought I liked it a lot. Right. Yeah, I, it definitely looks like an alien vehicle. It just looks like an alien plane as opposed to something that could go into space and would have a prototype warp drive in it. Wouldn't you think that would take up a lot of space? I don't know. I don't know, but that's another thing I liked about the story was mm-hmm. uh, you never really, you know, Scotty's the miracle worker and, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's better than Scotty. But uh, I really liked the way they were depicting Scotty as being excited to... You know, talk to somebody who truly created 
warp yep. drive for the first time on their planet without yep. any other help, not standing on anybody else's shoulders who already created, you know, warp five ships in the past. Right. Uh, literally just out of their own creativity, creating something that can go faster than light. Right. I thought that storyline was really good. And I kind of wished they would have, you know, if she really was manipulating, trying to manipulate the crew, I kind of wish she would have tried to manipulate Scotty instead of sleeping with Kirk. <laughs> they didn't actually <laughs> sleep, did they? I don't know. She was like, well, let's go to your quarters. And then it's like the next morning. Oh, did it say the next morning? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the there next you go. morning they go to the, the, the transporter room. But I mean, it doesn't say that they both came from the quarters, but it sure was implied to me. Yeah, well, it was, it was implied, but okay, fine. Yeah. But, anyway. So I just, at, least, I, at least that part of the storyline was realistic. Okay, good. <laughs> right. I don't know. I just, I just, uh, I really liked Scotty's story and his motivations as to why he would be enamored with her. Right. Maybe not romantically, but enamored her with her just for what she accomplished. Oh yeah. Oh, completely, completely. Uh, yes, I, I completely agree with you on that part. So, how'd you like the drawing of the Enterprise? Um, little pie platey. Little pie platey. Oh, it's horrible. It is absolutely horrid. Yeah, the nacelles are really truncated. They they look like little cigarette stubs. It, stuck. it looks like something I could draw, which is not which is obviously not saying much. <laughs> uh, it's not the most realistic depiction, but as we've said, this this art style is not leaning itself towards realism no. a lot of the times. They did an acceptable job on the shuttlecraft. Uh, again, this so it's it's 7. Right. So NCC 17017, that must, that's the Galileo. The Galileo 7, must be. Or the replacement. Well, uh, I, I, I can't... Did they actually show it close enough that you could see? Uh, probably not. Anyway, I thought they did a good job doing the shuttlecraft. They just did a horrid job on the Enterprise. <laughs> right. But to be honest, the shuttlecraft's not hard. It's a shoebox no. with, with little tubes on it. I, I agree. Okay, so now I'm looking at another shot of the shuttlecraft. And this one is, you can see here, it just says NCC 1701-7 right. USS Enterprise. It doesn't actually yeah. say. It should, towards the front, in front of the door, it should say Galileo, but it doesn't. Anyway, whatever. Right. So, did you understand why uh, Kirk sent her, sent, sent them away so that he could talk to Jenna? I think he was, he thought she was hot, and he was going to see what he could do. Put the, put the Kirk mojo on. That's the way I took it, too. Uh, you guys, um, I don't think I need wingmen right now, so why don't you guys move along and I'll just spend some time with this, this engineer. Right, but literally two sentences into the conversation, he's like, oh, well, you need to be being backed up to the ship to talk to the doctor, who I just sent away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. you know they got to the ship way before McCoy did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are other doctors on the ship, too, but whatever. Yeah, but in the scene where he's she's getting fixed, it's McCoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I assume it's McCoy. It's some blonde doctor. That's McCoy, right? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, so it's interesting how often first contact scenarios may not quite go the way you'd hope. Right. And this one definitely didn't go that well. And I really did like the uh, the kind of the comment there towards the end is that, you know, maybe achieving warp one is not should not be the the benchmark as far as when we start doing uh, first contact. Right. You know, maybe the culture needs to be a little bit more mature in other ways as well. Well, yeah. So there's multiple criteria, but and and why is building a warp building warp drive? Why is it like the gold standard or the main criteria? Well, they're getting they they've achieved that level of technical proficiency, um, and if they actually have warp drive, well, they're liable to bump into somebody. Right. And uh, no, those are two good reasons that it might be ready for first contact, but I don't think it should ever be the sole criteria. But this society, they said they already knew about other species Mm -hmm. in the universe because they they received radio transmissions and things like that. So yeah, their telescopes or whatever they saw, they saw some activity going. So in that regards, then you know, I mean, if if you can see that there's aliens out there and and potentially even talk to them, then I don't see why warp one has to be the the standard before you actually, you know, drop down and, and talk to them face-to-face. <clears throat> well, yeah, I would agree with that. However, what are the odds they're going to be seeing other ships buzzing around? I mean, you can't see beyond your solar system. Forget it. You're not going to be able to. Uh, and even what you can see within your solar system has its limits. So some other alien race would have to be buzzing in their solar system, maybe even close to their planet for them to be able to see them. Right. So unless it's some kind of a, I don't know, maybe some rogue uh, trading ship or something or whatever, you know, people maybe aren't going to be... Ferengis. Maybe mm-hmm. some Ferengis. Uh, you know, you're not going to be seeing some people coming by your planet or, or get into range where you can actually see them. I right. Wouldn't, I wouldn't think in most cases, but who knows. But but all you really need to do is build a a communication device that can pick up those you know transmissions that are zoomed that we've been looking for the universe. No, they have to be more sophisticated than what we. And SETI. Use. Yes. You don't think SETI's sophisticated? Okay, fine. Well, it can't pick up faster than light transmissions, which obviously they use in <laughs> Star Trek. Otherwise, they couldn't talk to anybody. Real time across amazing distances. Right. Yeah. Those those communications have to be zooming past them all the time. Right. Just pick up a few and then chime in. Hey, I can hear you. <laughs> Just to let you guys know, we can hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, that was my last comment. Uh, that's all I have to say, too. All right. You want to go on to the next one written by a very famous Star Trek Author? I will do that. So now we're moving on to uh, Bukenshin, the Bukenshin book from manga, Tokyo Pop. Uh, they have multiple stories in here, and the first one is titled Changeling. Published date of this one is April 2009. I was not as successful in getting a lot of information about the production people of this book, um, the creative team. Uh, they are light 
on the titles or the, the credits that they give within the book. So uh, I have a lot less information about this one. But the main thing is the writer is David Gerald of Trouble with Tribbles fame and multiple other Star Trek stories and other non-Star Trek uh, stories also. So always loved Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, and was it more Trouble with Tribbles, I think, in the um, animated series? Right, I think so. Um, the artist is E.J. Sue. Um, cover arts... Chrissy Delk. I was able to find that much out. And the editor is uh, Louis Reyes. Luis Reyes, same guy as the other one. And uh, this time also Bryce P. Coleman has editor duties. The cover presents Picard with a no-nonsense look on his face, hiking up a mountain on what appears to be a barren, tan-colored alien world that reminds me of Mars. The Enterprise-D is low enough in the sky that we can see it far above Picard. Picard sees off an away team consisting of Commander Riker, Worf, Troy, Geordi, and young Wesley Crusher. This mission sounds like a lot of techno-babble, as Picard talks about it, but essentially the team must transport to a location, make their way to the center of the Labyrinth of Wisdom, where they will take readings and monitor flux capacitor changes. Okay, not flux capacitor, but still, flux changes. Woo! Wesley is being a real precocious PIA prior to transport. Picard tells him to work as a member of the team rather than showboating and trying to do everything yourself, Wesley. And get off my bridge. After transport, the team makes their way into a pyramid structure. At the doorway, Troy comments that the pyramid is kind of like a TARDIS. Geordi explains that it's an effect of the Nexus energy. Geez. And they enter. Riker tells them to stick together as they made their way through the structure. But Wesley has to be competitive and says he will run ahead and show them how it's done. Geordi warns Wesley about the flux energies and tells him to slow down. Wesley enters a room ahead of the others and steps onto a round platform to show how fearless he is. A bright light ensues, and Wesley finds the energies have changed him into a young black man. The others are shocked and concerned, but Geordi says Wesley's changed into a chief engineer. Isn't that great? Wesley yells at the commander, asking him how he will change back. They say the mission briefing said, it's the legend of the Labyrinth. Those who journey to the center are permanently transformed. Worf says he cannot undo the change. Wesley freaks out, saying he likes how he was. He finally settles down and starts to get used to his new appearance. The others talk Wesley into trying the next pedestal device in a different location in the Labyrinth he may find the next change more to his liking. They finally find the next pedestal that Wesley steps on. This time, he is changed into a Klingon. Worf is not happy. Wesley is not happy. They say Wesley wanted to be bigger, and he's bigger. The next door opens, and Riker says, let's keep going. Unfortunately, there is a loud roar in the darkness beyond the new door. They are all freaked out, but Wesley in particular. 
Worf gives him a pep talk about courage and it being okay to be afraid as long as you do what you have to do despite your fear. A huge mechanical scorpion emerges from the darkness. The phasers can't stop it. Wesley grows a backbone and gets angry. He leaps up on the mechanical beastie and finds a weak spot where he can fire his phaser into it and disable the metal monstrosity. They move on and find the next room, with the next pedestal in the center. This time, Wesley is changed into a pretty hot little Betazoid lady in a short skirt. Most of the way, the team is shocked, but Riker is actually smiling slyly. Wesley grabs his head, all the voices in his head. He can read emotions in others, but he can't turn it off. Troy says he will learn. Wesley finally takes a few breaths and settles down. Riker gives him a pep talk. Wesley learns a valuable lesson about being a member of a team and apologizes to everyone. They decide to move on and come to the center of the labyrinth, the last platform. Wesley steps up and, and, and nothing happens. Wesley is pretty hot looking, but he's freaking out again. He wanted to finish learning how to be a man. They conjecture that no more changes are necessary for Wesley. He comes to grips with his new gender reality. Riker initiates transport back to the ship. When transport is complete, they find themselves in a holodeck. They never left the ship. All the transformations were holodeck hoaxes. It was all part of an elaborate plan to teach Wesley a lesson. He was angry at first, but finally lightens up and admits he did learn a valuable lesson. <laughs> Shucks. He even found the grace to smile and laugh at himself a little. The end. So, I got a few problems with this story. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm surprised. Well, do tell. All right, so... <clears throat> And the uh, the the main two have to do with him being uh, the Beta Z woman. Uh huh. Yes. One. <laughs> Riker knows that it's still Wesley. Uh huh. And yet he's like, mm hmm. Mm, uh, do, 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 do your word. <laughs> oh, Uki. Oh, Uki. It's Uki. <laughs> yes, that was very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I. I some of the some of the humor actually worked, and that was I kind of like that joke. <laughs> but I mean, so okay, I'll I'll even buy that you could uh, make it look, you know, put a holographic image over somebody else's own body and somehow trick them into thinking that they've changed. But uh, that that's stretching it quite a bit for me. And then to also, how did you, how did he get all the the powers of a beta Z? So he was reading their feelings and things like that. Oh, yeah. That that's not holographic. No. Manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, if you think about this the whole thing falls apart. So <laughs> let, let, let's just let's just go with the female thing. So if he took his hand and put his hand up on his chest, would he be feeling breasts? Holographic ones, sure. Okay. Holographic photons. Okay, that we're getting back to the whole thing about the whole the holodeck thing. Right. And what if he put his hand maybe Somewhere in his else. nether regions? 
would he not find Mr. Happy there? Or what? Nope, I'm with you. It doesn't make sense. Ah, I'm wondering about that, too. Anyway. I, don't, I may not be wondering as much about it as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned, I, I you mentioned some things, and I'm no. mentioning other things. There you go. So th- this whole thing is supposed to just be lighthearted. It's supposed to be light and fluffy, and it is light and fluffy, so there you go. Right. It is light and fluffy. Just don't think too much. And, and by the way, there are some times when Wesley was a little precocious, but I don't remember ever in him, him ever being, well, as jerky as he is here. Right. Yeah, no, he's in their face all the time. Yeah. Yeah, by the time he was wearing that uniform, he, he was pretty mellow as far as being part of the team. Right, exactly. He was still wearing that weird sweater thing. Then as far as, you know, his age-wise goes, I would be like, eh, I could see I could see him doing some of this still. But by the time he was wearing the uniform, he, was, he wasn't as bad. Right. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't remember him ever being this bad. But, yeah. And, and I got a problem. All right, so he jumps on there, and he becomes a Beta Zed. Yeah. Just happens to be female, because that's the main Beta Zed we've ever seen. But Well, and... and... He's taking the characteristics of his teammates. That's it. That's yeah. the part I have a problem with. Yeah. He jumps on there. He becomes a female baby, Beta Z. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. He jumps on there. He becomes a Klingon. There you go. And he then jumps he jumps on, on there. there and he becomes a chief engineer. Chief engineer is not a species. Well, I, it's an occupation. He, he becomes a young black man. That's not what they say. They I know that's, say that. I know they that. They say, oh, you're a chief engineer. I know. Okay. So what's your point? He should. They should have said, "Oh, you're you're a black dude. You're not." <laughs> he doesn't suddenly become a chief engineer. Although he was able to figure out how to open the door, which I didn't go into, but but I think that's something Wesley could have figured out anyways. He is yeah. a pretty bright little kid. Well, and that gets to the point that changing your physical appearance appearance with a holodeck. Okay, that's one thing I could go into. But he's got. He seems to be getting powers here, as your point about reading emotions and hearing people's emotions, whatever. Uh, maybe he would have figured out that door, but, you know, they're implying he's got some of Geordi's, uh engineering uh, knack, whatever. And then, of course, when he's the Klingon guy and kills that scorpion thing, it's like, whoa, that's some pretty good physical stuff. I mean, he just jumps up there on the back of that mechanical scorpion and, and takes him down. It's like, I don't know. And you think he can only do that? Only a Klingon could do that? Well, as opposed to a skinny little guy? Maybe. I don't know. But (laughs) anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think think up up until the time where he had superpowers as far as uh, the Beta Z reading, I could see that the power was in you the whole time. You always had that intellect. You always had that bravery. Uh Uh-huh. You can't say you always had mind-reading powers. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay, so for you, if you were in this situation, which change would be hardest for you, Donovan? Um, the Klingon? The hardest the... or the most distracting? Ah! <laughs> the hardest to adapt to. <laughs> Well, obviously, changing genders would be hard to adapt to. Okay, so 
harder than becoming an alien? Mm, yeah, that would be hard too. You'd suddenly have purple blood. You'd want to eat pasta. <laughs> yeah, you want to start. You have a, a sudden craving for gah. And prune juice. And prune juice. Well, oh, prune juice. Oh, my God. Uh, maybe that is the worst. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the gender flipping would be rough. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, the last two, would I think, would be the hardest. Yeah. You? I think the gender flipping would be the worst. Hardest to get used to. Right. Although, you know, ridges on your forehead and stuff, I don't know. That would be tough, too. I would not find my teeth. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'd be getting... I'd be getting caps so that they <laughs> I wouldn't cut my tongue on them. On them. Oh, yeah. Think about that. Uh, ouch. Okay, so what do you think about the drawing? The artwork? Uh, this is uh, very, very cartoony. Yes, this is full-on manga. Right. So, um, you know, for the, light, for the type of story it is, it fits. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a lighthearted yeah. story, so it's a lighthearted uh, art style. Right. So... Even when they had the giant eyes and the you know mouths that would drop to the, you know drop to the floor or whatever, uh-huh. very cartoony style, uh, it never really, uh, never took me out of the story because it kind of it kind of fit right, yeah, for the kind of story it was right, and and sometimes the artwork actually, uh, Im- enhanced the comedic effect. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that. Um, entertained me the most was the look on Riker's face half the time. So uh, whether it be the, hello, female Wesley, or the things where he's surprised and his lower lip is like, the way his lower lip is drawn in some of these things where he's like distressed and surprised is really, I thought it was pretty good, pretty funny. Right. Yeah, he always he always had a good expression on his face. Right. Um. So... Yeah. Uh, I will say, though, that the Enterprise D on the cover, uh, the saucer section is far too round. On the cover? or On the cover. Look at the cover. Above Picard. Yeah. Um, the saucer section is far too round. And if anything... Okay, so you remember Enterprise D. I it's very wide. It's very wide. So it's kind of a... It's kind, okay, of, it's yeah. kind of an ellipse... That's wider in the across the across the center, and not nearly as long front to back saucer right. section. Yeah, this thing, it's much rounder, and if it's actually longer in any it, more of a uh, more of an ellipse in any direction, it's longer than it is wide. Um, so n- not as much as Voyager, uh, not as much as Enterprise E, but if anything. It's longer than it is wide. And that's just not accurate. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then the, the drawing of it, the black and white drawing inside on the cover, you know, the title page, ooh, does not look good. Uh, the one that's on the Bokenshin one? Right, Bokenshin one. I think it's the same exact picture, just well, black and white. But it looks even – <clears throat> yes. And maybe because it's bigger and it is black and white. Uh, you know, good point. That probably is exactly the same drawing. Yeah. yeah, it is. Only bigger and black and white, it looks even worse. 
<laughs> but I don't know. It almost looks a little abstract. A little bit. To me. But then now, the, the, the picture within the book itself, the, within the yes. story itself, we, yeah. fantastic picture. I yeah, thought. so it was a nice picture above, the, uh, above a planet. Right. And it does look quite good. That, 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 I, okay, kudos. I, I ripped them a new one where it was crap, but that was good. <laughs> well, we don't know Chris. which artist did the cover, but, uh, well, but we know that this was uh, E.J. Sue who did the, in, the interior for this story. Right. Yeah, I didn't have any info on the on the cover art, did I? Oh no, Chris Chrissy Delk. Cover art by Chrissy Delk. Mm. So I wasn't able to find that out when I searched around around on the interwebs. All right. Well, she I think she does another story in this book, so we'll eventually get to see more of her art style. Cool. Uh, hopefully, cool. We'll find out. <laughs> but anyways, but the story itself. Um, you know, it wasn't bad. It was just uh, not as good as the other two, right? That we did today. So, in the beginning, when they first look inside the pyramid, and actually, they literally say, "I think, I think it's uh, Troy that says it." It's bigger on the inside than the out than outside. Yeah. So, do you think that was a purpose purposeful nod to Doctor Who? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um. Yeah, because that's a that's really awful close to what people say a lot on that show. Uh, so, uh, and, and I'll tell you, between that and then Jordy's explanation of that, and then all the technobabble Bar, uh, Picard was saying, you know, before they went on the mission when they were inside the transporter room, it's like Wesley's pretty dense. I mean. Okay, it's a light story, whatever, but it's like <laughs> something should start to give you a feeling something's amiss here. Anyway. Right. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I thought the whole mission was weird. The explana- Picard's explanation of the, of the mission was weird. Anyway. Well, yeah, because it was all, I mean, ultimately we find out it's all just a a ruse to yep. mess with uh, Wesley. Yep. Which, you know, it's a lot of senior personnel that don't have anything better to do than <laughs> mess around with some kid's brain. <laughs> but to help him. He's purposely scarred for the rest of his life. Exactly. But he learned a valuable lesson. He's like... So uh, one joke I wish they would have uh, done is when he was reading The Minds. And he's like, oh, y'all see me as being a jerk and a brat and blah, blah, blah. It would have been funny if they kind of panned around and then uh, uh, Riker. Riker's giving him that little, mm-hmm, you're, you're looking good. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, Riker. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it would have been funny. It would have been funny, but they probably shouldn't go there. <laughs> Yeah, but I want to know. I mean, because they all look at it. Not they all it. look surprised when he's like, "You all think I'm a brat and a you know all this stuff," and then they all look surprised that he's reading this from them. But they had to have programmed that into the simulation. Otherwise, how is he getting these feelings from everybody? Well, yeah. I, I well, how, okay. So it all goes back to your point. How is he getting 
beta said uh, remotion feeling abilities. Right. You know, so, I mean, that whole thing is totally not explained. You just got to turn your brain off at that point. And don't ask too many questions. Don't ask too many questions. All right. I'll try not to ask any questions anymore. I'm done. uh, Oh, okay. So I did like the joke where Wesley Wesley starts asking Worf about how Klingons feel fear. Because obviously Worf just said, you know, courage is about if you feel, you know, you feel fear, but you do what you need to do anyway. Right. So, oh, so Klingons feel fear. And then Worf's backpedaling for, like, three panels. I thought that was pretty good. I like that. Right. Does he actually say anything, or does he, he just... He does. He says, almost never. Or, you know, he, he says some things, too. Right. But it's the look on his face. Yeah, it And happens. the reactions from everybody Sometimes. else. Oh, is that what yeah. they say? He says, it happens. Sometimes. So, yeah. But not very often. That's the Exactly. There you go. There you go. Right. <laughs> so he's backpedaling like crazy. I like that. Yeah. No, the writing was good. I mean, I, I, like I said, I thought the story was was good. It was funny. Yeah. Um, I just it was that last that last change that I was just like, Psh. you know, because I really thought this is this is the Wizard of Oz story for him. You you had it in you the whole time, kind of thing, right? Uh, except you, you can't say that for the last one. No. no, he didn't have superpowers. No. So, anyways, but aside from that, it was good. Good. Just didn't have that, uh, you know, deep, deep storyline like the other ones did, where you know they were really dealing with hor- horrible things, life and death. So maybe we did le- need a little levity at the end of the end of the episode. There you go. Well, um, <clears throat> just a general comment about these Tokyo Pop books. Um, the in most cases, the stories are surprisingly good. Um, the art's a mixed bag. And looking at the production staff, it seems like most of them are probably Westerners. They're not Japanese. I mean, there are some people, E.J. Sue. That sounds like could be an Asian person, probably. Um, But a lot of the production staff seem to be Brits, Americans. I don't know. Um, The writing staff, right? Well, production, too. Yeah, and the art, Luis Reyes... Seems to be the uh, the main guy behind this. I mean, he he edits most, if not all of them, and he's even a writer on one of them. Um, yeah, I think Tokyo Pop was a, uh, a an American company, or at least oh, was they, it a publishing arm? Uh, because they did a lot of American storyline. There's like a, a Battlestar Galactica manga. There's a Ghostbusters manga. So mm-hmm. I think I think they also published things that would. Uh, you know, geared more towards Western audiences, but right. with that uh, manga spin, right? But right. then they also did republish a lot of uh, material uh, previously published in J- Japan. Ah, but for the Western audience, because right. doesn't the cover or the back cover or something say like uh, Tokyo, London, New York, whatever? Right. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting company. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah. So they close up shop. Um, I mean, they're not around anymore, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I tried okay. to look it up uh, the other day. Um, 
and uh, they still had a website, and they still, you know, if you wanted to buy some of their other, uh, their other products, you could get it through Comixology and things like that. So they must still exist in some form. Okay, maybe somebody bought them, or maybe they're still, still in business. Yeah, I just cool. don't see as as much stuff anymore. So I thought they went out of business, and somebody who's really into anime told me they they were out, but I don't know. Okay. Don't know. Oh, actually, North American Publishing shut down. So yeah, they did. They shut down their American arm uh, in 2011. It says. Oh. Hmm. According to Wikipedia's, and they're never wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can be wrong, but they're usually a great source of info. Hmm. Anyways, good stuff. Yes. Okay. So yeah, so you said out of all the Tokyo Pop ones, you. You've enjoyed them all, right? We we read the Art of War. That was a good one. That was um, by and, Will Wheaton. Well, by Will Wheaton. I, and I, to be perfectly frank, I don't remember the other ones that much. Yeah, I know that there was the Bandai one, which was oh, another I hated David that Gerald one. one with the teddy bear. With the teddy bear that was messing with people. The crew. Yeah, I I didn't like that. And then I'll be honest, I, I can't remember the other three, which is sad. I think there was a Borg one. Well, okay. maybe, maybe that tells you something. <laughs> it's been a few years, man. 2011 was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. But we'll get to more of them. Yeah, in the, yeah. In the coming weeks and months. I'm going to put it in the rotation to, to finish off those books. Good. And we have to also do some Peter Pan records. They still got a couple <gasps> Oh, dudes. can we? That would be great. Seems a little sarcastic there, kid. I don't know what you mean. Hmm. All right. Well, next week we're going to do uh, IDW. Uh, we're going to do the Captain's Log, uh, Ger- Jellico. Jellico. Yeah. I want to see that. I want to read that. Yeah, I don't, I'm curious to see if it's going to be based before or after the, his uh, tenure on Next Generation. Right. So that one will be interesting. And then there is a two-part miniseries entitled uh, Romulan's Hollow Crown, which I think is by uh, John Byrne, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, cool. Very good. So I've never read it, so I'm looking forward to reading all three of those next week. Right. Um, as, as I mentioned before to you, that there was a BBC TV like miniseries kind of thing called The Hollow Crown. <clears throat> so I'm looking forward to seeing in these books... Uh, why using the t- the moniker Hollow Crown? So I'm looking forward to that. Mm. And so this mini series is also about Romulus and the power struggles there. On <laughs> Not quite. Uh, uh, so that's all about the power struggles and the kings of England. Oh, that's a little different. Yes, it's very different. Yes, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure there's some kind of common theme here. So it should be interesting. So I'm sure there's a lot of intrigues as to the emperor of the Romulan Empire. Right. So should be should be lots of intrigues and things. All I'm right. Guessing. So you, then you have to watch the miniseries and read these books before next week so that you well, can give us I've, this. I've watched one episode of the miniseries, but <laughs> maybe that'll be good enough. But we'll see. 
All right. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. 
All music, stories, and characters discussed are for our entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.